The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to John chapter 10 this morning, we're in verses 11 through 18. And it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, the claim of the Lord Jesus to be the good shepherd is one of four of the I am statements in the book of John. This particular one, probably the most popular, and I think this one statement is known intuitively by most Christians. And so I want us to look, first of all, at the good shepherd. We've been seeing aspects of the shepherd for the last several weeks. But this morning, I want us to really focus in in a very unique way of the shepherd and how he applies to us. We know by comparison with other people, particularly with those who are in positions of responsibility, whether parents, pastors, or politicians, that he is uniquely good. He is is good in a way that they are not. The word good is interesting in of itself, and we know the meaning of the word, even though we haven't seen it in the Greek, but the word means good in the sense of morally good. It also means beautiful, winsome, lovely, attractive. And basically it describes the object as possessing any and everything necessary to be good. And moreover, we understand that he is claiming to be that exclusively. He is not a good shepherd in a line of many in that class. He is the good shepherd. And throughout scripture there have been many under shepherds, but he is consistently the good shepherd. Now, why does he call himself the good shepherd here? What are we seeing in chapter 10? Well, there are really two aspects of what he states here. The first is Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Second, Jesus is the good shepherd because he knows his sheep and directs them properly. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and they know me. So in both of these aspects, Jesus is above any shepherd there is. So I want to look at some aspects here about him before we get into the area uh, involving us. And that is, first of all, his death is victory. His death is victory. There is so much teaching about death in this passage. In fact, Jesus talks about it four times in verses 11, 15, 17, and 18. But also because it is emphasized in contrast 
to the hired hand who runs when danger comes. So the good shepherd is the one who sticks by the sheep, who defends them, and who will die for them. So one of the key things that you and I need to really fully grasp this morning is that wherever you are in life, he sticks by your side. No matter what you're going through, he's by your side. So I want to just show under this category four very key things here. Number one, his death is voluntary. His death is voluntary. Verse 11 again, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17 and 18, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we must never think of his death, that his death was somehow an accident or or even a tragedy. This was and is the greatest turning point in history. It was planned before the foundation of the world. In fact, Peter spoke of Christ in saying in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, It was in this that Christ was born, this reason Christ was born, as the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear his son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it was this toward which Jesus consistently and deliberately moved. Jesus did not have to come to earth. He didn't have to die any more than someone has to be a shepherd. Yet he both came and he died voluntarily for you and for me. And this is what's so critical as we move through this whole aspect of the shepherd, is to understand that if that God loves you so much to give his life, Isn't he also the same God who will rescue you in time of trouble? He is the same God who comes alongside you. Secondly, his death was vicarious. That is, Jesus died not for his own sin. He had none, but for ours in our place. And he indicates this by saying, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Sometimes when I'm working on it, especially this week, I had a hard time getting in my place. If you stop and just think about the fact that with all that we deserve in life, he died in my place. He died in your place. Now, the Greek preposition is hyper. In the sense of which Romans 5, 6 through 8 really makes this clear. It says, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what's the meaning of this? We are sinners, and as sinners we deserve death, both physically and spiritually. But Christ willingly died to pay the price for our sins. He's not waiting for you to get it right. He's not waiting for you to clean up your life and get to a certain point. No. He died for you while you were still a sinner. 
problem is that the world has be, has accepted the lie that we're not really bad, and therefore, who needs a savior? This is this is the same ploy that Satan has been using since the garden. We mentioned it last week. He said to Eve in the garden in Genesis three verse one, "Has God really said?" And you know, he's still saying it today when he says. According to the scriptures, we are all deserving of death. Number three, his death was specific. That is, he died for his sheep. We do not know who they are. Only Christ knows, and it's our responsibility to take his message to the ends of the earth. We cannot know completely, and in fact, if we had been lived in Sodom, would we have thought Abraham or Lot, Abraham's nephew, was a saved person? Probably not. Yet the New Testament tells us he was accounted righteous in the sight of God, though he definitely messed up by going to Sodom. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-9 through 9 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes as he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows his sheep and he rescues them. When we saw the blind beggar of chapter 9, sitting in the corner begging, having, having been blind since birth. And everyone back then looking at them, thinking there has to be sin here because of the way that, that he is. Would anyone have thought he was chosen by God? Yet Jesus healed him and saved him. So it's our responsibility to get the word out. And then number four, his death is because he loves you. You, you mean that Jesus loves sheep? Yes, enough to die for them. Stinking lost sheep? Sheep full of anxiety and fear? Sheep so self-centered they would turn their backs on their own for their own pleasure? Sheep who are only concerned for themselves? Yeah, exactly. Jesus died on the cross for you. Now all of us have a deep desire to be we need to know that someone, be it a mate, parent, or a friend, really knows you and cares about you. He knows all your failures. He knows your sinful desires, your aspirations, and he still loves you. So knowing all of this about the Good Shepherd, I want us to just focus now for the next few minutes about the reality that the Good Shepherd makes other shepherds. Good shepherd makes other shepherds. Now, there are three shepherds in one here that I want to just key this off with. And it's an amazing portion of the scripture that teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, there is additional points of the story that teaches us what we are to learn about what we are to be as we are made like him. In other words, Jesus is the good shepherd, so too are we. 
and we are to find a standard for our shepherd work in his own example. Now, the Bible points this out in a very interesting way. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus is represented as a shepherd. But in each case, the word shepherd is preceded by a different adjective. So, number one, we have, which we've been talking about, the good shepherd. And we've talked about this all through chapter 10. Here the emphasis is on the voluntary and vicarious death of the shepherd. Number two, he is the great shepherd. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In this verse, the the emphasis is upon Christ's resurrection, and therefore also his ability to work through you and I. In other words, as the great shepherd, he is equipping you and I to be shepherds. He is equipping you and I to lead those that he's put in our charge. And then number three... He is the chief shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is about his second coming and to reward those who have served him as under shepherds. And when Jesus revealed himself as the shepherd, he revealed many important aspects of what he is to us. But at the same time, he also revealed what we should be to others. For we are all shepherds if we are believers in Jesus Christ. The great, greater or lesser, uh, in a greater or lesser sense, we have all been given oversight in some capacity. So the question is, to all of us, do we exercise our responsibility as Jesus exercised it? In our families, our business, in the church, Do we know Christ's self-sacrifice? Are we faithful? Either way, we may improve our service by reflecting on the characteristics of the Good Shepherd. So let me go through some of these now and really emphasize the important part of what I want to say this morning. Are we found faithful? The first and most obvious characteristic of the Good Shepherd is that he is faithful. That is, he is faithful not only when the skies are sunny and the countryside is at peace, but in the midst of torment and trial and tribulation. Verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You see, the hired hand is doing a job for what he can get out of it rather than in a true sense of responsibility toward the sheep. So the question becomes, do I live as though I am a hired hand? Or do I live with passion and compassion and love for those in my charge? Am I faithful or faithless? Do I stay with the work or do I abandon it when I see the wolf coming? Or do I even have a responsibility? Rather wanting to sit on the sidelines. Before we try to excuse 
what we might be, look at what he says in verse 13 about this hired hand. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So what verse 13 is doing is it's reflecting about it on a very profound principle that you and I need to really understand this morning. And the principle is this, that a man does what he does because of what he is. Let me say that again. A man does what he does because of what he is. A liar lies because he's a liar. But before he ever tells a lie, he's a liar. A thief steals because he's a thief. But he's a thief before he ever steals the first thing. Conduct conforms to character as a stream does to a fountain. Therefore, before we try to excuse ourselves, let's learn that our conduct in testing proves exactly who we are. So let us ask God for the character that proves faithful. And this is what's so important about trials, because trials literally prove who you are. I mean, when things are good and life is good, we just go with the flow. But when the bottom drops out, that's when we find out who we are. And that's what we find about our character. Next, are we hardworking? Are we hardworking? Nothing worthwhile is done without hard work. And our standard is that of the good shepherd and what he has done for the sheep. Now, through the last several weeks, we have taken time to look at Psalm 23. We're not going to look at Psalm 23 this morning, but what it does is it teaches specifically about what we've been supplied. Sacrificially, he does not, the person does not lack rest, guidance, safety, provision, or a heavenly home. And why is this true? Because of the hard work of the shepherd. Look, look at it this way. The sheep does not lack rest because the shepherd seeks green pastures where he can lie down. He does not lack guidance because he's led, the, Jesus leads the sheep beside still waters and because he leads them in the path of righteousness. He doesn't lack safety because the shepherd defends him against natural disasters and wild animals. He does not lack provision because the shepherd finds all he needs and spreads it before him. He does not lack a heavenly home because the shepherd has already gone to prepare it and will come back for it. All of these items are provided by the hard work of the shepherd. In the same way, the needs of God's people, whether in families, homes, or churches, are provided by the hard work of those the Lord has appointed as under shepherds. And this includes all of us. But this should be a profound reminder to elders and deacons. Do we work hard in our responsibilities? Do we give ourselves to hard work in order that the members of grace lack nothing? That's really, man, our responsibility. Next, and this is one I can hear the groans as soon as I say it, are we patient? Are we patient with the sheep? If you recall what our Lord said, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow. We have to understand that sheep move at different paces. You can want someone in your charge, be it a child or a loved one, to move quicker 
to the understanding you know God wants for them. But they need to follow the leading of the shepherd. They need to follow the leading of the spirit. So make sure you are feeding them like sheep and not teaching them to fetch. Because that's kind of what we do in our haste to get them on board is to try to make them what we think they should be. Allow the spirit to work through them and not hinder them. Now, are we good examples? And this is what Peter was talking about primarily in the verses in which Jesus is called the, the chief shepherd. He's writing to the elders in these verses, but in a very real sense, it applies to all of us. So listen to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders and, a, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in his glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, are we like that? Are we examples of mature Christians understanding Faithful in the midst of persecution, showing love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. All of this provided by the shepherd. Are we taking on these responsibilities in a godly fashion? Are we self-sacrificing? What is it that characterizes the good shepherd in Jesus' description of him in John chapter 10? Above all... He gives his life for the sheep. Now, I really want this to sink in. We will never be able to give our lives as Christ gave his life. Nevertheless, we can give our lives for others in service by putting them first. And this is something that is important for us to understand because Jesus gave up his life on the cross physically to die for us. But did you ever stop to think that he gave up his living life as well? He never had a home. He never owned a bed. He never had hobbies. He never took vacations. His entire life was focused on the sheep. And one of the great examples for you and I is to cultivate within our heart a completely sold-out, dedicated life to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ. I often think of the little childhood song, Jesus, Others, and You. you know, it's, it's in that order for a reason. And I think one of the great healing properties for a Christian is to be able to serve others. One of the things that's really helped me in my life is when I'm down or struggling the best way to get out of it is go help someone else in prayer. Pour your life into someone else and watch how your problems go away. Or at least go into the place where God can use them. So we need to be self-sacrificing. Now, are you motivated by love? And here's where Jesus loves us. He cares for us 
as she did. So ought we love one another. Now, many people avoid Christianity because they think they're not good enough. Many people won't come to church because they think their life isn't churchy. Jesus wants you right where you are. That's the kind of love I'm talking about, folks. One of my great frustrations with modern-day Christianity is that the world knows us by what we hate rather than who we are. The, lo- the world knows Christians about, about more by what we're against than what we're for. I want to take you to maybe for a church, two of the most important verses in the whole Bible. So, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I give you. Not a new suggestion. Not a new, hey, this is a good idea. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Now, how did Christ love you? He loved you with a cross. Sacrificially, while we were still sinners, He loved us. He didn't wait till we were right. He didn't wait till we were cleaned up. He didn't wait till we treated him properly. He didn't wait till we got all this stuff right. While we were still sinners, he loved us. And this is how you and I are to love each other. This is how, why we're to love each other. Think of the relationships that are torn apart because we are frustrated with someone just because of where they act or what they've done to us. According to this, we love them in spite of it. Right where they are. Love them. Now, why? Okay, why? And you can ask this question. Why on earth are we supposed to love Christians who treat us the way they treat us? And the verse 35 makes it clear. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Let me tell you something. You can go up and down the streets talking about Jesus. You can witness on the job. You can witness wherever you are. You can just spread Jesus. But if you have not love, you are a clanging cymbal and a gong. Your words have no basis. Love moves past everything. The love he's talking about moves past everything. And here's the key. Look what he said. With that love, they will know you're my disciples. When you love like that, people will beat a door to this church. When they see a church full of people who passionately love each other, don't care what they are, who they are, what they've done, but love them unconditionally. I mean, you can listen to the world and all its rhetoric and all its pomp and all its politically correct jargon of of how they treat everybody. They want to be loved just as much as you. And when they know genuine love, they see it. So when you take this commandment that Jesus has given us and you love each other, just like Christ loved us, the world 
will know your testimony. And as we've said so many times before, many people won't crack the Bible. You're the only gospel they heard. So what is the gospel according to you? The key of importance here to you and I individually and collectively as a church is that when Jesus gave his life on that cross for you and I, while we were still wretched sinners, he didn't tell us to get our act together before we could come. He loved us right where they are, right where we are. And you recall the story we went over several weeks ago about the adulterous woman caught in the act of adultery, dragged before Jesus. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. What do you do? Well, according to the law, she should have been stoned. She was guilty. She violated. But as Jesus wrote in the sand, when the question was asked, he said very simply, Whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And as you remember that message, as we dropped the stones, one by one, they all walked away. But when Jesus looked at that woman, he said, Where are your accusers? They don't have any. He said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, Go get your life right and come back and see me. He didn't say, hey, I don't like what you're doing. No. He simply said, I don't accuse you. You know what he did? He offered mercy and forgiveness to wretches like me. And when you and I start loving each other that way, the world will see our forgiveness. Now, Jesus understood this. Jesus understood this very clearly. And so he went to Peter, if you recall, in the last, very last uh, chapter of our book, and we will get there someday. But in chapter 21, we have this incredible picture of Jesus encountering Peter. And if you you recall the story, it's all happened. He's been crucified. He's getting ready to go back to heaven. Peter is a train wreck. Peter, egotistical Peter, who stood for Jesus so powerfully those three years, he couldn't that night when Jesus told him he was going to deny him. He said, oh, Lord, no, I'm not going to deny you. Hey, if if I have to die for you, I'm not going to deny you. He was a powerful man. But that night, he couldn't even admit to a teenage man that he was really Jesus. And now we find Peter back on the boat, fishing like he did before Jesus came. And I I can just feel Peter on this boat. I can just sense him on this boat with every cast of the net out into the water. Why? (laughs) Three years with a Savior. Why? Did I take three years and just throw them away? Why? Why couldn't I stand for him? I could just feel the angst in his heart. And as he gets close to the shore, he sees a silhouette on the beach. And it's Jesus. And he took him right there. And I can see Peter getting off the boat and walking across the sand, not uttering a word, because what do you say? Jesus says to Peter, Peter, love me. Three times. Peter, love me. Peter, love me. And Peter responds. And Jesus says, 
See, Jesus understood as he wanted to recommission Peter to go forth that until Peter understood how to love Jesus Christ, he couldn't love anyone else. He had to learn how to love Jesus with his own controlling hands. And once he had that, he could love anyone else. Can I say something to you this morning? If you've got someone you're struggling with, the chances are the problem is not with them. The problem is with your love for them. Because when you love Christ with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, you can love anyone. Because it's the Holy Spirit loving anyone. He loves anyone. I love anyone. And that's what we're talking about here. One of the examples that happened recently that just turned me inside out, and I shared this with you a couple of baptisms ago when I was baptizing Nicole Smith. Six-year-old sweetheart that's a foster child in the care of As we talked about, I wanted to make sure she really understood salvation, understood who Jesus Christ was. I said to this little six-year-old girl, I said, Camilla, who is Jesus to you? She looked me straight in the eye, and she said, he's everything. A six-year-old girl who's been rejected by her mom and dad. Jesus is everything. What does that tell you and I? Is he everything to you? I mean, is he everything to you? Once you have that relationship right, then God can love you twice. But you have to love him with all your heart and all your soul. I just am moved so much with the story of Peter Jesus gave him Peter. I mean, I, I, Peter was probably on that boat, knowing Peter, probably cursing the blue sea, mad at himself, hating everything. But at the right time, Jesus came. Is Jesus drawing you in this morning? Is he helping you to understand that everything you're struggling with can be put in perspective and built by him alone? Are you willing to cast all your cares upon him because it's his will? Are you willing to allow the Spirit of God to take over? Once we understand that fact, the power of the Spirit is unbelievable. And therein is true salvation. What does he say this morning? Let's pray. Father, we understand that the most important thing right now is that everyone understands that you loved us completely unconditionally. You didn't love us because of who we are. You didn't love us because we were good, because we had it right. You didn't love us completely based on loved us in spite of who we are. And I just want to say this morning that if you're here and you're in need of 
give you an opportunity to just turn your life to Christ right now. To just say, Lord, I may not fully understand this, but I want you as my Savior. If there's anyone here this morning who would like to say that, I won't embarrass you, I won't call you out by name, but if I can pray for you, would you just slip your hand up wherever you are? Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, and you know life has not been easy, but you want Christ to take over so that you can learn what it means to mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Can I pray for you this morning? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God all over the place. Father, these ones who have raised their hand, I pray they're raising it from their know their life, you know their situation, you know what they need. Lord, that hand raised is saying, Jesus, I need you, and I want only you. Lord, work in their hearts to draw them close to you. And if they need to speak to someone, I pray that they seek you out as someone that can assure them of this important need of what they need. God, you are a great and awesome God. Thank you for what you're doing. We give you tremendous praise in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.